0: I grew up on like 1,100-acre hippie commune sheep ranch out there. You know, if you were to get into shooting a stick bow and get into shooting a compound, I think that the average person is going to say that they enjoy shooting their stick bow more. So I get the question a lot, you know, well, what should I start out with? Should I start shooting a longbow or should I start shooting a recurve? For me, the greater consideration is the shape of the handle. Instinctive shooting is, think about instinctive shooting as throwing a ball. So there's no sight. You're picking up your ball and you're looking at the person you're throwing it to and you just, you know, throw it. For a right-handed shooter, the string is going to actually kind of jump to the left as it comes off your fingers. And then it's gonna start kind of this S-shaped oscillation. By getting somebody to, um, you know, to train you in shooting is, a, is money well spent. Hi, this is South Cox with the Western Bowhunter Podcast, and you're listening to episode number 57 of Living Country in the City. Y'all ready for your dose of flyover state spirit? Straight from the concrete jungle?
1: Well, put down your latte and pull on your boots. It's time for Living Country in the City. Hey y'all, welcome to another episode of Living Country in the City.
2: Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important. Like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started.
1: Today I'm talking trad bow hunting with the man behind Stalker stick Bows and the Western Bow Hunter podcast, Mr. South Cox. Thanks for hopping on the show with me today.
0: Oh yeah, hey, no sweat. It's always fun talking to you know guys in the hunting field, there, the hunting industry, and um, I've been you know at it for a while. But I, at one time, just like um, just like everybody, was a newbie in it myself. So anything I can do to kind of help the the guys that are starting out, or even um, you know the guys that have been at it for a long time, I, I love sharing you know stories, sharing tips, and uh, you know whatever insight I can help out with along the way.
1: Well, you know, that's what I always say that that was really the whole reason I started this podcast uh was so almost solely as an excuse to be able to reach out to awesome people that I admire and I find interesting and say, hey, can I like sit and pick your brain for, you know, an
0: hour? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, and those conversations happen all the time, every day, and it's a shame that more of those those uh, conversations aren't recorded and, you know, released on a platform like this, and that's the, the great thing about podcasting is, um, you know, pretty much any interest that you have, you can find a podcast on it.
1: I mean, how amazing would it be to just be the, the fly on the wall on on everyone's hunting camp and just, you know, be able to listen in on that or, you know, all these discussions at the Expos and ATA and Sheep Show and just the ones that were never recorded that were just two guys, you know, they run into each other grabbing a drink or whatever it may be. They sit and talk for 45 minutes and, you know, there's just something amazing in there that you could learn from. I mean, that's, I think that's why I enjoy doing this so much is, is being able to, I don't know, shine a light on those conversations you wouldn't normally see elsewhere.
0: Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, if you step back to when I was a kid and getting into, um, into bow hunting, into backpack hunting and, and all that, it's the The ease and access of information and just the volume of information that's out there is is it's almost mind boggling compared to you know when I started out backpack hunting, I didn't even know that backpack hunting was a thing. <laughs> I just knew that I needed to get further from the you know the road than what I could uh you know get back get out there and back in a day and so it was like, all right, well, I'll put a backpack on and and uh you know I can get further out there and into less disturbed animals. So that's kind of how I got my start into it.
1: Well, so speaking of that, um, kind of what's your, uh, what's your background? How did you really start getting into the outdoors?
0: Well, it's, um, you know, part of it was my upbringing and, and part of it, uh, my story is kind of, you know, how unlikely, um, it is that I got into it from my upbringing. I was, um, a, uh, uh, son of hippie parents, you know, in Northern California and neither of them hunted. And so right there, you know, there's, they're more of the tofu eaters than the meat eaters. In fact, my <laughs> mom was a vegetarian, you know, growing up. And so, um, you know, a good portion of my life, I didn't eat meat and not by choice, but just by, by her choice. Right. So I was, uh, I think it actually kind of turned my interest more into be a carnivore than it did deter me from eating meat really. But I can remember, you know, as young as, uh, You know, three or four years old throwing rocks at, you know, at birds and, you know, wanting to hunt. Right. So I about five when I was about five years old, I found an old wood recurve under a neighbor's house. And and, uh, so that kind of started me down the road with archery. And I never really, you know, set that love aside. You know, there was times, you know, I got into racing bicycles, BMX bicycles and stuff that I, I wasn't as passionate as, um, you know, as I was the, the bulk of my life there. But uh, I think I was about 13 when I got my first compound. And I mean, here's how not only ignorant, but how little information there was available. I thought that you could pull any one of the three strings and it would be a different draw weight you know so <laughs> <laughs> i just got super lucky that the bow that i bought was um i was able to back off the limb bolts enough that i was able to you know draw the thing back and so that kind of got me started and when i was 17 um i did my you know my first backpack um you know trip where i loaded a pack and and i uh, wanted to dive off further off the road than what i could so i mean i i didn't really have a mentor growing up there were particularly when i was young it was just something i had a real you know passion about being a hunter myself and and i didn't know what i was doing i mean I, there animals were in no danger for certain. And, uh, you know, this was l- long before I knew about hunting licenses or anything like that. I just had, you know, got a bow and arrow and went out, you know, hunting. And, and, uh, then it wasn't until, you know, I got older that, um, I learned, you know, and started subscribing to magazines and just, uh, devouring any information I could get on, uh, on hunting. And I really actually wanted to be a rifle hunter, but my dad wouldn't let me have a rifle. And so the, uh, the bow, you know, I fell back to the bow. And, um, and then once I, you know, kind of got my first taste of, of success, I think I shot my I can't remember if I was 16 or 17 when I shot my first buck. And uh, at that point, it was, you know, no looking back. And, um, like started getting into backpack hunting in the wilderness areas there in Northern California, and I lived in California all the way up until last year, so forty-seven years I lived in California. So I mean, I, I was at the other end of the state from you. Thankfully, <laughs> I didn't grow up in the city. I grew up, you know, out there in the country, and and uh, but still, you know, had the same politics in California to deal with that you guys down in Southern California have. Where in uh, Northern California? So I grew up um, on the, well, between my mom lived in Santa Rosa, um, about an hour north of San Francisco, or not in Santa Rosa. She lived west of Santa Rosa, but it was in a really rural. I grew up on a, like 1100 acre hippie commune sheep ranch out there. <laughs> and uh, and then my dad had moved up to near Eureka and, and further up north there in California, about I don't know, it's maybe 80 miles from the Oregon border or something like that, it's right there on the coast. So, and in both areas, you know, I lived um a a good portion of my life. Well, no, pretty much all my, you know, my childhood till I graduated from high school, you know, most of the time with no um no electric power, you know, PG&E wow. was all solar power and and I, uh, you know, uh, no flush toilets. It was, uh, you know, outhouses and, and all that. So it was, uh, you know, a really rustic upbringing that most, uh, most people, um, you know, maybe more towards kind of the turn of the century kind of upbringing, really.
1: That's crazy. I, you know, I didn't know a ton about your, your history with all of that. And that is super fascinating. I mean, and even just uh, not, not quite to the extent of the, the super rustic upbringing, but it's it's always nice when I hear stories that I can identify with and that you weren't you weren't the one that you know running around with a uh, 22 shooting squirrels growing up your entire life, you know, with your parents that have hunted their entire lives and your grandparents. And sure. Um, Cause I'm sure, you know, you probably get the same thing. You interview a lot of these people and you hear their stories and it's like, well, you know, my dad got me into this and, you know, I had him as a mentor through this and he was there when I got my first buck. And, um, and, you know, my parents are, are both very supportive of all of my hunting endeavors. they, You know, they get so excited when I go out and, um, you know, we're doing some family vacation and I'm planning on turning it into a hunting trip and they're okay with it. Uh, but you know, it was just, it was the same kind of thing. It wasn't our family. It wasn't something our family was into. So starting at a bit of an older age for me and, uh, you know, we both laugh about what you're saying about the compound bow, uh, not knowing which string to pull back right right but for someone that's never i mean it's a weird looking device uh for someone Mm -hmm. that's not familiar with one has never seen one used before you pick up a compound bow and it that's not like an unheard of thing to think of you know it's it's fun to laugh about but Mm -hmm. uh unless you have someone in that store showing you exactly what to do uh it's it's a very uh I could see a lot of people uh, identifying with that, N- not necessarily on the compound bow, but maybe there has to be everyone's done something like that, I feel like, where, you know, you, you whatever device or tool or thing, you know, oh, I used it backwards, oh, I I got some wind checker and I, I poured it in my hand and threw it up in the air because that's how I thought you were right. supposed to use it, you know, or whatever it was. I'm sure everyone
0: has got some story like that out there. Yeah, by all means. I mean, I think that, um, you know, if you can laugh at yourself, it it makes the whole learning curve a lot more enjoyable because, you know, if you get a little too wound up about doing things right, then uh, then it's it's not going to be near as fun. (laughs) And anybody that uh, pretends like they've never made a mistake
1: is got to be a liar or uh, who knows? they're a liar.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been backpack hunting since uh, well over 30 years now, and there's not a trip that I don't learn something new or have something pounded into my brain that I knew, but just kind of took for granted or, you know, chose not to bring that piece of equipment or set my tent up in in that spot or, or whatever, you know, it was maybe getting a little naive or, you know, a little too relaxed and complacent. <laughs>
1: Yeah, anybody that's listened to the podcast much, they know I'm the first one to admit that I have made more than my fair share of mistakes trying to figure this out and uh I've definitely I'm pretty sure I've I've managed full seasons worth of mistakes in in each hunting trip, <laughs> each single hunting trip. So Sure.
0: Uh well that's a that's a great thing about, you know, starting out and and uh the information that's available now is you know, you can listen to a, a podcast or read something and kind of, you, you have this massive knowledge in your head and you go out and then you still makes make mistakes and you make some of the mistakes that you already had heard or learned about. And then it's like, oh, okay, yeah, now I remember hearing that. And this is, I can see how this applies or, or what you know, what the reason was for that. And, and uh, you know, you can kind of shorten the learning curve, but at the same time have Um, you know, maybe an experience that might have taken two or three times of messing up to for those gears to click. um, But then all of a sudden, now that you got all this, you know, potential knowledge out there, um, then the solution is, is, you know, much more available.
1: Yeah, it's definitely, there's definitely a huge difference between hearing about something and actually experiencing it, whether that's, you know, playing the wind or or whatever that happens to be, but then when you definitely when you have that knowledge, when you've heard it several times, when it finally does it, it finally does click a lot quicker than uh, I feel like you would if you're just uh, trying to shooting in the dark, if you will. Right. Uh, so, um, grow up uh, in the hippie commune. Uh, you, uh, you find this bow, you start bow hunting. What, what took you from there to, uh, starting stalker? Wow.
0: Um, that was a long road. Let me tell you (laughs) a
1: little big jump there.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I, I got, I dove in head first. I, once I started hunting, I was hooked. Um, you know, in the beginning, I was only able to, you know, take one, you know, vacation week a year. And, uh, so every year that was definitely, you know, my focus was bow hunting. It was a backpack hunt up in the, you know, one of the wilderness areas in Northern California there. And then occasionally I was able to pry away for a weekend bonsai trip. Um, and then, I. So that was probably the first seven years after I graduated from high school. That's what I was doing and, Um I got in the construction field and, you know, working seven days a week doing that for the most part. And and then I, you know, try to bank my time for for that. And then uh, I went out on my own, got my contractor's license and was able to kind of prioritize. I mean, I, at one point I realized that you know, I could work 24 seven the rest of my life and you just have to block out with X's on the calendar and and take, you know, this is the time that I'm going to be going and and doing, you know, this, whatever that might be. And so I, I started taking, you know, two or two weeks or three weeks and doing two and three hunts a year. And, and I, um, I don't think I did my first out of state now, my first out of state hunt was uh up in Oregon and and uh, so I did that fairly early on. I I hunted mule deer in 1988. Shot a buck up there in Oregon and uh that got my you know first taste of mule deer hunting and um we had a local archery shop down where I lived and worked and uh, that was a, you know every day that I had any free time I was up there hanging out at the archery shop and Larry Jones um uh A uh, stick bow, he was actually interestingly enough a stick bow guy out of uh, Eugene, Oregon. Um, He started putting together movies under Wilderness Sound Productions, his production company. And so that was about the time that I graduated from high school. And so I got to start watching these videos on, you know, old VHS tapes. And he did one on mule deer hunting. And that really primed my interest for hunting mule deer. And I had been, you know, a lifelong blacktail hunter, which to me, I've hunted um, all the deer species, and blacktails to me are probably the toughest. Well, blacktail and coos deer, you know, kind of goes one or the other, depending on like if you're. I really haven't hunted blacktails up in Oregon, you know, kind of in that thick rainforest type of country much. It's been pretty much all, um, you know, Northern California, and I kind of tailor or did, I, I haven't hunted them up there in a few years now, but I would tailor the kind of country that I hunted to be most conducive to my, my style of hunting. So I really enjoy spot and stock versus like up there in Oregon, it's primarily all tree stand hunting. And uh, so I would look for a kind of alpine country in the wilderness and would focus my efforts there where it's more open country and you could glass them up and. And, uh, and then try to, you know, put a move on before they went and bedded in the thicker brush. And and that's a a characteristic of black-tailed deer, um, you know, where they they may be out feeding in the open, um, but then almost without exception, they'll go dive into a, you know, a thick brush patch to bed for the day. Whereas mule deer, they're more likely to bed, you know, under a rock or a tree or something with a lot of, more sparse cover, at least when they're still in velvet. And once they strip the velvet, then they become a whole different animal. But fortunately, most of the archery seasons fall in that early, you know, at least the first half of the archery season, you can hunt them um, while they're still in velvet. So that, um, that uh you know I focused my efforts probably the first five to seven, eight years on on blacktail hunting with a little bit of mule deer hunting, just a small amount sprinkled in there. And then in nineteen, see, what was it, ninety-three, I think it was, I um I uh with a partner I bought out that local archery shop that was uh there in town and that Unfortunately, it was a short-lived endeavor. It was basically a blind date business partnership, and uh, <laughs> my my business partner was not the easiest kind of person to get along with. And I'm I mean I'm super easygoing, and and I uh, can get along with pretty much everybody. But this guy was uh, his I can't remember what position he had, but he's like a merchant marine on a on a um, on you know, on a ship and, and, uh, he had a kind of high position. So he you used to bossing people around and, and really not, you know, having to answer to anybody. And so it was kind of a lopsided, you know, partnership that, uh, that didn't last too long, but that got me further, you know, into the hunting industry where I was going to some trade shows and, uh, and I met, um, a guy lawn lobber, who was an outdoor writer and photographer, very prolific at the time, and and chances are, you know, if you saw wild animal um, pictures in a hunting magazine at that time, there was a better than average chance that it was you know his work. And he did a lot of writing, and so he was um, trying to shoot you know all five deer species, and and uh, fortunately for me, I hadn't shot a Columbian blacktail, so we kind of did some swapping where I wanted to go up and shoot a Sitka blacktail, so. Um, I took him out um, on a Columbia Blacktail hunt and, and, uh, and then we really hit it off. And at that point, you know, for probably the next 10 or 12 years, we did two or three hunts a year together. And uh, during that time, I kind of played as photo model for him and, and consequently got into, you know, a lot of um, hunting magazines, got a pic- lots of pictures in there. And, and then I started kind of doing some of my own writing there as well, and which eventually, evolved into a position, a staff position with Eastman's Bowhunting Journal. And uh, I wrote for them. Um, I think I started writing, my first article for them was in their, on the second issue that they actually put out. So I wrote uh, for Eastman's for years. um, And then that, uh, that kind of, got me further into the hunting industry and and uh, I helped Cameron Haynes out with a book that he did on um on blacktail hunting and kind of shared my California expertise um in that section of the book. And um you know and then let's see it was so probably close to twenty five years that I had been no it's 20 years. So I'd been I graduated from high school in eighty seven and then in two thousand seven a friend of mine from sacramento or right just near sacramento there he had uh stalker stick bows it was actually stalker recurves back then and uh he had started up in the in the 80s there and and he had run it for maybe i don't know 10 years or something and then um he got a job he had four kids at that point and and was offered a position as a construction superintendent and you know had the the dream of pursuing, you know, building bows on one hand, and then the um, financial security of, of a salaried position with benefits and all that. And and uh, when you're when you have that kind of commitment with a family, um, you know, I, I don't blame him for taking the route of uh, of least resistance there. So he kind of uh, shelved the the bow business, and before he had done that, I had gotten a bow from him. And so I had, you know, I played, I dabbled in traditional archery in the 20 odd years, um, that I'd been bow hunting up to the point where I got the the phone call from him and he, uh, he said, Hey, I, you know, my, my wife needs my, my bow shop for her photography studio. And, and, uh, so she's leaning on me to sell it and would something you'd be interested in doing. And so it all kind of worked out. I had sold a rental at that point in time. So I had the money to burn and, so I bought, um, Starker recurves in 2007. It was pretty funny. I mean, I was, you know, like I said, I dabbled in traditional archery. So it was no, um, no surprise, you know, on, on how challenging to me, um, or how challenging hunting with a stick bow was going to be. I, I went in with my eyes wide open and and I asked Charlie when I, when he had offered me the company, I said, well, you know, what do you think about a guy, a boyer building bows and, uh, and building stick bows, but hunting with a compound? And he laughed. (laughs) I don't think it would go over too well. (laughs) And, uh, so I was really nervous, you know, I mean, I, my family loves to eat venison and, and, uh, so I was, you know, I had these visions of all these unfilled tags and, and, uh, so I kind of started, Gradually in that transition from hunting with a compound to hunting full time with a stick bow, and and honestly, I don't know when I when I bought the company if I ever really. Um, I mean, I, at that point in time, I was still very active in my in outdoor writing and. Um, you know, I knew a lot of my audience that I was writing to hunted with compounds and and I was a little bit concerned about how that transition was going to go. And and then at the same time, you know, I didn't want to be looking at the bottom of a freezer that, you know, had no meat in it. So my first year, 2008, when I had the company, I, um, I backpacked into Colorado on a solo hunt and I had my stick bow in my pack and I had my compound strapped onto my pack and My intention was to hunt elk with my stick bow and hunt mule deer with my, um, or no, I take that back. Uh, yeah, hunt, um, elk with my stick bow and mule deer with my compound. So I, uh, ended up ironically filling my tag on opening day, shot a a mule deer with my stick bow and, uh, (laughs) um. So it was from there I realized, wow, you know, I, I could really do this. And, and uh, since 2008, I've shot at least one mule deer every year, knock on wood, with my, comp- with, my, with my stick bow. And I think it was only a couple of years before I actually set my compound down for good. And, and uh, it's been, you know, no looking back. So that's kind of the long story of how that transition happened.
1: No, it's, I, I'm obsessed with traditional archery. I, I love it because that was the one thing I grew up doing is like not in any sort of official capacity, but I got, uh, like a youth recurve or long, like I can't even honestly, I, I can vaguely picture it. It was neon yellow, uh, but the, you know, this youth compound or recurve and, uh, not compound. What am I saying? <laughs> but I remember shooting this thing and I loved it. It was, I swear, the most fun I used to have. And I was pretty good with it. You know, but this was also back back in the day when I, you know, I'd go, I'd go behind the archery bales and I'd collect every single arrow I could find. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I was shooting aluminum arrows and carbon arrows and wood arrows and, you know, of all different lengths, you know, some with... One feather on them, you know, it was just, it was, it was a mess, but, uh, I loved it. And ever since then, you know, I I picked up my compound bow and I, I'm not sure I could ever, I mean, you know, I'll still go to the range now and again and, and uh, throw down a few magazines, but I don't think I could ever really pick up my rifle the same way again since I started shooting my compound. And, um, I'm almost afraid if I pick up a, a recurve right now I mean I'm just I'm already you know I've I've already made it hard enough on myself to take my first animal sure uh-huh. I, if I if I pick up a recurve right now I may never go back to the compound because I remember how much I enjoyed it as a kid and I think there's just there's so many parts to it too I think uh, just in that like it, especially the bows I see you know I I follow follow stalker stick bows on Instagram and the bows you make are just works of art like they really are and i think that's one of the just amazing like added uh things added to the appeals yeah um but so talking you know i've really wanted to do an episode on traditional archery um just because I probably should. I probably shouldn't because now I'm going to want to go out and and buy one. And that's one more thing uh, I shouldn't do, but uh, I've been wanting to do an episode on traditional archery and, um, and really just from a new, new hunters perspective, how, how would you go? Someone that is, doesn't know anything about recurves. Um, how would, uh, you know, they said, Hey, I want to get started in traditional archery. Uh, what, what's my first steps here?
0: Well, before we even take that step, let's let's talk about the psychology just on on, uh, you know, hunting with a stick bow versus hunting with a compound versus hunting with a rifle. Um, Just to touch on it that, you know, if you start out hunting with a stick bow, you're kind of diving into the deep end of the pool as far as, you know, challenge and uh, and versus chances of success. It's um, not that it can't be done. I mean, it's uh, it's something that guys do every year and there's hunters that fill, you know, the larger percentage of their tags with the stick bow um you know then they then they leave tags unfilled but it requires um a lot of patience and a lot of experience and not necessarily a lot of experience um but a lot of opportunities and um, you know, if you are hunting, let's just say you're hunting an area public land where there's kind of a um, you know maybe deer numbers are few and your your opportunities for a shot, um, let alone animal sightings are are few. Your learning curve is going to be a lot longer and your chances of success are going to be a lot fewer than if you have let's say you you start out on a on a piece of private property and you're hog hunting I mean to me that's like the ideal animal to learn on is uh you know it's like on a, on a pig hunt where they aren't in you know super spooky animals their eyesight isn't great their hearing is really good their sense of smell is unmatched but if you keep the wind in your favor you hunt them in the winter time you know after your um the vegetation has gotten wet for, from some rains and it, you can be really quiet you can get in close and uh, get super close shots um or even, you know, going on a hunt down in Texas or something, you know, buying a plane ticket, flying down there and hunting a a ranch down there where there's lots of, lots of hogs. What you want is lots of shot opportunities. And, uh, for somebody that, you know, I, I think a lot of it too, you know, whether you're going to stick with it or not, is going to depend on the, on each individual's personality. If you, um, have the kind of personality where you don't get, easily dejected or deterred and and uh, once you get your mind onto something you're going to work hard until you succeed then um then shooting a stick bow is a great um you know is a great option because um chances are it's going to be very frustrating in the beginning there's going to be more failures than successes and when i say failures i don't mean it in a negative aspect it's just uh you know you're you're not gonna um have as many successes in that you you know, in the, if you're using it as a barometer, um, you know, filled tags is the barometer. You're going to have lots of successes in that you're going to have a lot of enjoyable experiences. And, I uh, and, you know, unbiasedly, I can say that, um, you know, if you were to get into shooting a stick bow and get into shooting a compound and shoot, you know, both of them, um, you know, a similar amount of time, I think that, the average person is going to say that they enjoy shooting their stick bow more. And when I'm out hunting, I'm constantly shooting my stick bow. I'm just walking around, picking out a leaf, picking out, you know, a stick or whatever, and I'm shooting it. And I really enjoy that. And, um, you know, when I had a compound, I didn't do that so much because, you know, you're know, you shooting an arrow a lot faster with a lot more energy and you're breaking arrows when you're out there, you know, shooting at, um, at sticks instead of, a, you know, you're hitting the, just the stick and, um, you're burying your arrow in the ground and hitting the rock that's in the ground. Right. So it's re- a lot harder on equipment. Um, but if you can, you know, if you're either the type of person that, um, you know, enjoys a challenge and is willing to, to stick it out, um, then shooting a stick bow is a, is a great you know, place to start. But if, if you are the kind of person that needs kind of more instant gratification, then I would start, honestly, I would start, you know, pick up a stick bow, start shooting it, but not necessarily maybe hunting with it. Um, but start building that, that foundation of skill, get a rifle, get a rifle tag, you know, go put some meat in the freezer, get your feet wet, learn, you know, what it's like being out there. Um, You're going to learn about the animals. Um, You're not going to learn to the level that you would with a compound or a stick bow, um, but you're going to enjoy, you know, have a greater likelihood of enjoying success. Then transition to a compound, that learning curve is going to go back up again. You're going to have to learn more about animal behavior you're going to have to increase your woodsmanship and and your stalking skills and, and or tree stand placement or whatever it is. You're going to have to um, increase that knowledge about the species that you hunt. And then as you transition again from a compound to a stick bow, then that learning curve starts right back up again. And again, you're having to you know increase that knowledge base. And if you just jump in and start right out with a stick bow, you don't have the benefit of you know that time where you know you got to learn about which way the wind blows with a rifle in your hand at 400 yards you know um, all of a sudden now you're having to sneak 15 or 20 yards from an animal and there's a lot of things to learn about you know taking your boots off and and uh, you know proceeding forward with a couple pairs of socks on versus with a rifle I mean you can go out there wearing Cordura <laughs> and nothing's gonna hear you you know when you're when you're measuring your shot distance in hundreds of yards. Whereas, I mean, I'm, I'm so anal about my, the clothes I wear as far as how quiet they are and any, you know, accessories or gear that I have on my body when I'm closing that final distance for the stock, because, you know, if you're stalking a a mule deer in its bed and uh, it's the early afternoon and, and there's not really much for breeze, I mean, you can hear a fly buzzing at 20 yards and, uh, any rustle of your clothing is going to make noise. So, um, I think that would be my bit of advice, you know, starting out for the newbie guy and it, as a manufacturer of traditional archery equipment that might seem, you know, maybe not the best business move to be, um, not encouraging somebody to start out with a stick bow right out the gate, but I'm interested in longevity in the sport over the long haul Um, because it doesn't do me or hunters any good you know the whole hunting greater hunting community if we have people that are getting into hunting starting out at the deep end of the pool getting discouraged and then bowing out after a year or two i i want to see people that are um successful in doing that this and and whether your metric of success is filled tags or just great experiences you know your your first great experience in the in the field um it it might be sneaking up on a on a buck um you know with a stick bow in your hand and and blowing it out at 50 or 60 yards and just that being the closest you ever gotten to an animal in the role of being a predator um you know, with a bow in your hand, or it might be that first great experience might be, you know, shooting a a buck at 300 yards and, and, uh, putting meat on the table. Each, each person's going to have a different, um, you know, metric for that.
1: No, absolutely. It's, you definitely, uh, there's a lot of layers to hunting and it's, it's a lot easier when you just start easily peeling back those layers one at a time and not having to worry about trying to, trying to dig through all of them at once and and get everything perfect uh <laughs> with that with that stock when maybe you've never never stocked in on an animal before period you know getting into 15 20 yards is a lot different than getting into 100 and even getting into 100 yards ha- presents piles of challenges um and it's definitely very wise advice uh, not that, not that I have totally taken that advice. I've been given that by several people.
0: <laughs> sure. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. I have a tendency to throw myself uh, wholly into the deep end when I do anything. Um, sure. I've I've realized that about myself.
0: But... I think a lot of us are like that, you know, the people that get into hunting kind of get at it, get into it at a fanatical level. And it's not just like a passing interest. And, and those are the people generally speaking that are going to stick with it. And, and then, you know, they, are the guys that like to, to challenge, you know, themselves and embrace that challenge. And for the guys that are like that, you know, that want to start out shooting a stick bow. Um, I mean, I don't want to deter anybody from it. That's for sure. Um, And for those those people, you know, I think that probably the easiest way for me to to make recommendations is for the guy that's that shot a compound a little bit. So, you know, maybe he's got an idea of, okay, this is my comfort maximum comfortable draw weight that I'm. That I can shoot with a compound. So let's just say that that's um, sixty-five pounds. Let's say with a compound. Why well, I, I recommend dropping, you know, at least fifteen to twenty pounds when you're transitioning from shooting a compound to shooting a stick bow. I think the the biggest problem um, when you're shooting a starting out shooting a stick bow is over bowing yourself. In um, and, and uh, again, as a as a manufacturer of, of compounds, I, you know, uh, uh or excuse me, of stick bows. I think a good, um, piece of advice might be if, you know, you're interested in trying it out or, or, you know, you want to do a, this, the, the first step might be go buy yourself a cheap, you know, Chinese made recurve. That's, you know, maybe 10 pounds less than, than what you figure you can uh, comfortably shoot just so that you can start with that shoot and, uh, really work on your shooting form. And, uh, so maybe, you know, you buy a 40 pound Sage or Samick recurve and, uh, and you start out with that you can pick one of those up for you know in that ballpark of 175 bucks and or you could pick one up used, probably off the of ebay or something like that i haven't really looked at it but i'm sure you can or craigslist or whatever or buy one off a of hunting buddy or go in on one with a hunting buddy but in any case something to get you started and get get you started uh, a foundation of um you know good shooting form because that's going to go a long ways if you're struggling to hold that bow back at full draw or even reach full draw because the the draw weight is you know what you have this preconceived idea of what you need to have like a lot of guys f- feel like there's a psychological barrier that um i i can't shoot less than 50 pounds with the stick bow because it's just going to arrow going to bounce off the animal or whatever it is i mean i went through that same thing um, when I transitioned from shooting a compound, I was really caught up in the speed craze, you know. And so I shot a um, a light arrow um, when I transitioned from shooting a stick. bow. I was shooting a, I don't know, probably a four hundred and twenty grain arrow, something like that. And I uh, kind of around what I was shooting with my compound, and and I got lucky with that that mule deer that I shot. That um, you know that I got good penetration, and that I that I, I uh, made a fatal shot on that buck. And now, you know, my arrow weight is another 150 grains more than that. And, uh, it's not shooting as fast, but man, I got a lot more momentum and those arrows are, you know, blowing through both sides, almost everything I shoot at. But my, yeah. So my first, my first tip would be, you know, don't start out too heavy, 15 drop a minimum 15 to 20 pounds in draw weight, you know, even better to start out with a lighter bow there in the beginning, um, there's lots of, uh, lots of good stuff on YouTube. There's another podcast that um, it's called the push podcast, and it's a traditional archery uh, podcast. And the, the two guys there um, go deep into, um, you know, shot sequences and shooting form and have a lot of guests on that podcast that are, are uh, really good with um, traditional archery and, and, you know, a lot of knowledge there on that podcast. So it's a great resource to, to listen to. They do some YouTube stuff as well. Uh, if you go to, um, you know, if you think of this transition, as far as like, for me, um, as a Western hunter, even if I'm hunting within the state that I live now in Colorado, um, and I take off on an eight or nine day hunt, um, even though I'm buying resident tags and, and, uh, you still have a lot of money kind of tied up as an investment into that, into that hunt, into that experience and getting, you know, kind of investing early on in your, in your quest, whether it be shooting a compound or shooting a stick bow, um, by getting somebody to, um, you know, to train you in shooting is a, is money well spent, um, Denver, Colorado is pretty centrally located in the country. There's a fantastic archery shop there with a level four archery instructor trained at the Olympic Training Center, um, Tom Clum. And he does uh, um, quite a few podcasts as a a guest. And he's a a partner with the guys there from the Push podcast. And uh, you can book a private lesson or, you know, a series of private lessons with them. It wouldn't be a bad idea to fly into colorado into denver you know for the weekend set up a couple of uh private um lessons with him or he does a hog um clinic down in um texas where you can actually go down there's a, another shooting coach joel turner who does um oh what is it iron mind hunting and yeah, uh yeah yeah, so he uh, teams up with Tom Klum and and uh, Joel kind of does the, the mental side of the training and Tom is more of the shooting form side of it. And so you can get, a, you know, total immersion experience, go down, you know, learn about shooting, learn how to be properly shooting at the same time, get a chance to go out there and hunt on, you know, during this, I, I, I don't know if it's a four or five day Uh, you know, week-long kind of full immersion clinic that they do. But you get a chance to take what you're learning directly out into the field, apply it. And I think, you know, for somebody that's starting out hunting, let alone starting out shooting, making that transition, what a fantastic resource to be able to um, to learn from. Because you're going to be learning about shooting. You're going to be learning about hunting. There's a lot of people there of all different skill levels that you can glean information from. Um, but spend some money on yourself, you know, learning, you wouldn't, you know, go into a, uh, a position as a CEO without having, you know, a kind of a college background to begin with. And if you think about, you know, investing in a mentor, investing in a teacher, then, uh, this is kind of a similar, um, similar background, get an education in what you're doing. A lot of it is, you know, you can learn from podcasts like this, but you can't beat some hands-on instruction for sure.
1: No, absolutely. Um, just like anything with hunting, is all the theor- theoretical knowledge in the world is great, but it, it, when the rubber meets the road and you're actually out there trying to do something, uh, it may click a lot faster than it would uh, if you didn't get all that knowledge, but it's never going to be the same thing as uh, some good straightforward hands-on instruction
0: right you know now and kind of taking that next step so if if a uh, you know a guy is interested in in starting out shooting a stick bow there's you know basically long bows and recurves and so i get a, the question a lot you know well what should i start out with should i start shooting a long bow should i start shooting a recurve and to me the option is I mean, for one, some guys are just drawn to, like, the, the lines, the physical lines of a, of a longbow, and that's what appeals to them. And, and for sure, you know, if you are going to get greater pleasure, greater enjoyment out of that, by all means, you know, start out with a longbow. There's nothing wrong with going that route. Um, for me, the, the greater consideration is the shape of the handle and um a lot of like the older um or kind of the, kind of the English style longbow or Howard Hill style longbow they kind of make more of a d shape when the bow is strung um they'll have like a kind of a suitcase style handle where you just grab onto it um you know somewhere right below the shelf and uh where the arrow sits there and those in my experience, are more challenging to shoot accurately and consistently than if you were to start out shooting a bow, uh, whether it be longbow or recurve, with a more defined kind of pistol grip shape to it where your hand is going to be forced into you know, that grip location consistently from shot to shot. And I, that's, you know, a big part of shooting, you know, whether it be a gun, a compound or a stick bow is doing the same thing over and over again. It's that repetition and consistency. Um, so I like to start guys out shooting, um, you know, kind of that defined pistol grip shape, whether you have longbow limbs attached to it or recurve limbs attached to it is almost a moot point. Then, uh, you know, again, don't shoot um, more draw weight than what you're comfortable shooting. And the only way you're really going to know that is by, um, you know, if you have that uh, experience shooting a compound, if you kind of use that 15 to 20 pounds less as a gauge, then that's a great way to start or go down to your local archery shop or local archery club or range And, um, trad guys are for the most part, really, um, friendly people. And, and, uh, you know, if you ask to shoot a handful of guys, bows almost without fail, then, uh, then, you know, people are going to not have a problem with it. Whereas, you know, maybe the compound, there'd be a little bit more concern about, you know, uh, plus a compound, if you're a 29 inch draw length, then you can't let a guy who's a 27 inch draw length, try out your bow. It's just, you know, it's not going to work. Whereas a stick bow you know, the further you can take a guy, um, that's got a bow that, uh, you know, maybe he, he had it made. So it's 50 pounds at 28 inches, but a guy that's drawn 26 can still shoot that bow. It's just going to be a little bit less draw weight, usually in that, um, two to three pounds per inch. So if you are, if you have a bow that says 50 pounds at 28 inches, and you draw 29 inches, then you figure you're going to be about two to three pounds heavier than that 50 pound, um, you know, rated draw weight. Conversely, if you have a 26 inch draw length, you're going to be, um, you know, four to five pounds lighter in draw weight. So you can get a chance then to shoot, you know, if you go to the, go into an archery club is a great way because, you know, you could shoot a handful of different guys' bows maybe, and then, Get a chance to to feel what kind of draw weight is comfortable for you, and then also what grip and what um, bow manufacturer might work out best for you, because you can't necessarily, you know, one one bow my any bow that I make is not necessarily going to be the answer to every archer out there um, one guy is going to shoot, um, you know, maybe one bow within my bow line better than, than another. And it's, uh, it gets down to that where, I mean, you might be able to pick up all, all the bows I make and shoot them equally well, but some people might be that one bow particularly works best for them. And so, you know, getting a chance, there's another great reason to go to Rocky mountain supply there in Denver. They have at any given time, they'll have plus or minus 500, used bows there in their shop i mean the it's got to be by far the biggest selection of used bows in the country so you can go there and shoot yourself silly trying out all these bows used bows there and it's a great way to get into it too without you know spending um all the money for buying a um you know a full custom bow to begin with so you know, fantastic resource there. And then there, there's scads of people that work there. Um, and all of them are passionate about traditional archery. All of them um, fantastic for helping out the newbie. You know, and again, I mean, if you're talking about a two $250 investment in a plane ticket to fly out there to Denver and go visit, you know, a shop like this, it's a, um, it's a great resource to get you headed out down the right track. I mean, you might drop a 800 or 1000 bucks on a custom bow um, that really is appealing to you, only to find out that it is not the right bow for you. So, you know, you think about that investment of 250 bucks on a plane ticket and flying out there and burning a little bit of your own free time and to get started in the, in the right place. It's a, you know, it's a kind of a no-brainer, really.
1: Well, it's not like it's exactly a chore either. No, (laughs) Uh no. (laughs) Oh, darn. I need to fly out to Colorado and go shoot all these bows and hang out with these awesome people and learn about hunting. Twist my arm. Why don't you?
0: (laughs) <laughs> For sure. Yeah. No, it's a, it's great. And, and I'm, you know, an hour and a half from Denver. So while you're at it, you know, make a, take an extra few hours to drive up to Estes park and visit my shop and you shoot some more bows here too. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, no, definitely. That's uh you know, it's, it's, it's always interesting. I think with anything, you know, you talk about not trying to overdo it with your, you know, with your first bow and finding the the draw weight that's that's right for you. I mean, I think that really applies to whatever you're using. You know, you don't start out. I, I mean, I'm I think I'm drawing seventy pounds on my on my compound right now. Uh, when I started out, I think I think I was barely able to pull fifty. I think I dropped it down to about forty five. Mm-hmm. Um, and I if I was if I had been trying to pull back at 65, 70 at that time I not only would I have been a, maybe able to get the bow back once a day I just I would not have enjoyed it um, right when I started shooting I did not start shooting with a thirty yacht six you know bolt action sure I started shooting with a you know little semi auto Ruger ten twenty two yeah because it eliminates all those extra extra issues that you have to worry about. Otherwise, you know, you're not worried about the kick of the gun when you've never really shot before there's starting off smaller is not, uh, is not a sign of weakness.
0: It's a sign of intelligence. I think a hundred percent. I, that was very well put right there because I mean, it's E is so easy to get your ego involved in, you know, the, the specs on your bow. I mean, I shot, um, through the late eighties, I, I shot, you know, 80, 85 pounds with my compound because that's what, you know, all the other manly guys did. Right. And, uh, and I guarantee you, I did not shoot it as well as I could have had I been shooting, you know, in the sixties or seventies, you know, in draw weight. And, uh, It's it's pretty interesting. I look back on uh, so the guy that I bought the business from. You know, when you're building bows, you keep track of. uh, You know, basically, it's like a log of of all the specifications that go into the limbs when you're gluing them up, and that's, um, you know, all the draw weights and bow lengths and all that. And and uh, you know, so keep in mind this is back in the '80s when he was building them, and and uh, in early '90s, and I'll look at the draw weights, and they'll be. I mean, almost without exception, it'll be 55 to 65 pounds. And now the average draw weight that I build on the bows that, you know, I'm selling to customers are probably between 48 and 53 pounds. And, uh, and so you, you think about, you know, that's a, like a 12 to 15 pound weight reduction. And I think that people are just kind of getting smarter about, uh, that you don't need that much draw weight. And I, uh, and it's more important to place the arrow accurately than it is to have a ton of power, um, you know, behind that arrow. And because, I mean, if you, if you don't hit the animal, it doesn't matter how fast your arrow is going, right?
1: <laughs> I mean, you might take down some trees, but, uh, it's not going to fill yep. the freezer.
0: Yeah. I mean, you get your arrow, you get your broadhead buried deeper into the tree trunk and it's harder <laughs> to dig back out again. I've done that many times. <laughs>
1: And we'll just leave that one there for the season. Right. Right. <laughs> I've definitely uh uh where I where I shoot up at my folks' place, there's a a big old just pile of firewood behind it. And there's been a few times I've where I've where I've been a bit closer and I've really considered how much effort <laughs> that arrow's worth. Right. Uh, uh-huh. I look at it, I'm like, wow, that's gonna be uh that's going to be a good half an hour to chop that thing out of that log.
0: <laughs> yeah, when I was younger and my budget was smaller, I would expend a great deal of energy, you know, trying to get my broadheads and and uh, back out of dead logs and what have you, and uh, and you know, oftentimes at the um, at the expense of my arrow, where you'd be wiggling the you know the shaft back and forth trying to loosen the broadhead up, and then end up snapping off the aluminum shaft. I mean, this was you know back in the day before carbons were around, so um, yeah, it was something else.
2: Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top of the line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com.
0: But anyway, going back to, you know, kind of equipment and shooting and what have you, just to kind of further along that transition or that introduction into traditional archery, I think, I, so, you know, assuming, okay, now you got your bow and uh, and the next thing is, you know, you for one, you need to have arrows fletched with feathers if you're going to be shooting your bow, your stick bow off the shelf and, and by off the shelf, you know, with the compound you have that same or similar shelf right above your hand, but your arrow doesn't sit on the shelf. It sits on an arrow rest. Um, And with some of the metal handled uh, recurves that are available, you can like put a stick on rest onto the side of the, uh, of the riser there on that strike plate. Um, and then shoot off an elevated rest but with a wood handled recurve almost without fail most all of them are set up to shoot off the shelf so your arrow is sitting directly um, not directly on the wood shelf because there'll be some kind of pad there where there would be out of leather with some hair on it or just tan leather or um, another material there so your arrow sits there on the shelf and uh um, so you need feathers that are going to collapse um, as they touch the shelf on the, on the way past it, you know, heading downrange. Whereas a plastic vein, it, when it hits that shelf, it's the, a feather is going to give and deflect there, whereas a plastic vein um, doesn't have that much flex to it. So then you're going to get some terrible arrow flight coming out of the bow. So if you're shooting off the shelf, you definitely want to be shooting feathers versus veins. Um, so that's your first thing. Um, as far as selecting arrow spine with a compound, typically speaking, um, bows, the compound bows are a little bit more tolerant of arrow spine than, than stick bows are. And this is going to go into just barely touch on tuning. Cause I think, I mean this, you could have a whole multi part series podcast on tuning arrows, but I'll just kind of barely touch on it a little bit here. Just so that people kind of get a introduction to the concept Um, when you are shooting with your fingers, as that string leaves your fingers, that string doesn't come straight off your fingers. What happens is as your fingers relax, that string is wanting to pull out of your fingers. So it's actually going to kind of, if for a right-handed shooter, the string is going to actually kind of jump to the left as it comes off your fingers. And then it's going to start kind of this s-shaped oscillation as it travels towards the resting position you know where the bow is um where the bow where the string lays before you start drawing it that's called brace or um so as your your string travels back towards brace then your uh string is actually kind of starting out jumping to the left and curves back to the right and then s- travels back to the left again so what happens is you're slamming the back end of that arrow with the bowstring um, as it's pushing it out of the bow and because that force is exerted you know as it's leaving your fingers is exerted to the left it's going to bend your arrow um because all that force is put on the the back end of your arrow it's going to actually bend the middle of your arrow one direction and then as the string corrects and then over cracks and goes back to the right again then it's going to apply forces in the opposite direction to your arrow so your shaft is flexing like crazy coming out of your bow and it's important to match the stiffness or spine of the arrow with the um the amount of force that's being pushed behind that um that arrow so you couldn't in other words, you couldn't take a, a weak spined arrow and shoot it at a heavy draw weight because you're applying so much force that thing's going to bend like a noodle coming out of there, and it's not going to recover well. And then, um, if you shoot a lightweight bow with a um, with a really stiff spined arrow, what's going to happen is that arrow is not going to flex very much, and as the um, as that string pushes it forward, it's actually going to slam that shaft into the side of your bow there. So it, it's pretty interesting. If you looked up like slow motion, um, arrow release or say arrow deflection, um, you can watch some, it's actually pretty scary and intimidating because man, that arrow comes out of there like a limp noodle as it, as it comes out of the, your bow there. And, and, uh, it's pretty incredible to watch those slow motion videos, but you want to get you want to match the spine of your arrow with with the weight of your bow and and uh, fortunately there's what are called spine charts so if you go to say gold tip arrows or eastern arrows like that um to their website then there's spine charts that'll get you in the ballpark of uh which spine you should be using and that's going to be um determined not only by your draw weight but also your draw length and the point weight. so the heavier the point weight you have, the stiffer the aerospine you need. And uh, so that you know is something to keep in consideration that you you know if you're going to shoot 125 grain broadhead, then, uh, then if you all of a sudden change to 200 grain broadheads, then you essentially effectively made that aerospine weaker because when you push on the back end of that arrow, you have more weight up front that that arrow, uh, that inertia has to overcome. So it's essentially if you took a like think of it as this, if you if you took a, uh, a, a soda straw and you um, put the end of it against a wall, uh, you know, a fixed object and you pushed on the other end of it. You know, obviously that that wall is not going to move, and you're going to bend that soda straw. Now, if you put that same soda straw up against something that you know, would move with less force, then uh, then that soda straw is not going to bend as as much before that um, that wall you know starts to move. And so, essentially, by adding more weight up front what you're doing is you're making it harder to get that arrow to move. So that arrow is going to bend more with a heavier weight out in front. And conversely with a lighter point, then that arrow is going to bend less. And so you don't need as stiff of a spine to uh, get good arrow flight with a light, with a lighter, you know, arrow. So again, that's kind of diving in, you know, maybe even a little bit further than I intended to, but there's a ton of information out there about bow tuning um, so let's assume that you have your arrow spine matched to your bow or pretty close so that you can kind of tune out some of the, uh, you know, problems that you might, or tune, you know, tune out the discrepancy you have an arrow spine to your bow. Next step is, okay, am I going to shoot split finger or three under, um, my suggestion for guys that are starting out is to shoot three under so what that means is that when you knock your arrow on your string your finger placement is either going to be typically there's other options too beyond split finger or three under but if you go split finger you're going to be putting one finger on top of the arrow above this above the arrow on the string and then two fingers below the arrow um and if you're shooting three under, you're going to be putting, as the name implies, you're going to be putting all three fingers under the arrow. So what that does is if you're shooting three under, when you draw back and you touch your anchor point, where, say, you put putting your, your top finger at the corner of your mouth there, what that does is that puts that arrow higher up so that you are essentially more like looking over the barrel of the shotgun So you can use that point of your arrow as a reference, you know, left and right, and then, okay, I need to hold my arrow, let's say, you know, at the bottom of the brisket or, you know, at at knee level on, on a 3D deer target, and then my arrows will hit, you know, where I'm aiming at 15 or 20 yards or whatever. Whereas when you're shooting split finger, that arrow is lower, and so that tip of your arrow is less in your peripheral vision, and it becomes... Uh, more challenging, you know, to consistently hit the target, and then then so we go from split finger or three under into shoot different two different shooting styles as far as instinctive or gap shooting, and uh, instinctive shooting is you think about instinctive shooting as throwing a ball, so there's no sight, you know, you're picking up your ball and you're looking at the person you're throwing it to and you just, you know, throw it. And if you think about all the times when you're a kid about the ball going all over the place, and then after a while, then through muscle memory and your brain subconsciously computing, you know, if you're throwing the ball to a guy 10 yards away or 30 yards away, then you, you don't think about, okay, I have to hold, you know, or I have to make the ball arc this much more you just pick up the ball you look at where the person is and you throw the ball to them well that's what happens with instinctive shooting it takes a while to master and to kind of program your brain but what you're doing is you're you're looking at the spot you want to aim at you are subconsciously judging that distance you're drawing back the bow you're focused on that spot you release the arrow and holy cow it hits well, that took a while to, uh, to accomplish that, but after enough shooting, then you kind you can program your brain to do that. Um, three uh, or shooting uh, with a uh, gap shooting method. You're using the tip of your arrow as a reference to the target. So out to what's called your point on, where your point of your arrow, you could use that essentially like a sight pin. So like my point on is about 40 yards shooting with the uh, gap shooting method. So about 40 yards, I know that I can draw back and I can put the point of my arrow where I want to hit on the target and my arrow is going to arc in and hit there. But at 20 yards, I have to actually be at my, the point of my arrow is below the animal. um, And I will have an idea of, okay, you know, At 20, And I don't do this consciously. I don't, you know, think, okay, the animal's at 22 yards, so my arrow needs to be 10 inches below. I I just have it kind of, again, it's somewhat instinctive kind of gap style. Um, And I will draw back. I'll line up my arrow left and right, you know, under um, the animal that I'm – or the target or whatever. And then uh, I'll cut my shot, and, you know, it'll – Either it'll go in there, assuming that I, you know, did all the mental calculations properly. There are a lot of guys that are transitioning from shooting a compound that are gap shooting and they're using a range finder. So they've spent the time at the target range where they know, OK, at 20 yards, you know, my point of my arrows this far under the target. And uh, so they'll use a range finder and they'll determine it. And I uh, and then. They're able to, you know, shoot very effectively that way. I know uh, quite a number of people that do that.
1: So I've also had some people that tell me, and I, you know, this it could just be that they're doing it completely wrong, but that uh, rather than using the tip of their arrow as a reference, they have certain uh, like mental spots on their riser that they use uh, as a gap, almost, almost kind of like pins on a compound sight where they're like, okay, you know, this little nick on my riser, that's, you know, that's where I aim at 20, that, you know, this little swirl in the wood is where I aim at 30. Um,
0: that's not something I've played around with, but I could see how that could work. You'd you'd need to be shooting your bow in kind of a more traditional vertical style, um, you know, in order to be able to do that. Um, I shoot my bow canted so it's the the bow as i draw it back is kind of at a at an angle not vertically um you know in a vertical position and what that does um by canting the bow is it kind of clears out the side of the bow the sight window of the bow out of my sight picture kind of opens everything up and it's a uh, it might seem totally um foreign to a guy shooting a compound where you're shooting a you know a, a bubble level and you're wanting to make sure your bow is perfectly plumb, you know, or you're going to be shooting left or right versus, uh, you know, when you're shooting canted style, then, uh, you know, it, it very is very contrary to what you spent so much time learning shooting a compound. But personally I shoot mine canted. So at that point, any marks on the, on the riser would be of, of no use at that point
1: and i think if i remember correctly the people that were doing this was at like a, a an intro to archery class or something uh at one of the local ranges and you know it was very much like okay you hold your bow straight up and down and uh-huh. this is how you and and so i think that's that's where it was so it was a very much a more like okay you know this is very proper and perfect exactly how you do it and most of these people weren't hunters they're not uh you know, they're, they're just shooting at uh, Vegas faces. Um, sure. so slightly, slightly different, uh, environment as well. I'd imagine.
0: Yeah. A lot of the target guys that are really into the target shooting, shoot a vertical, um, you know, ver- with vertical form. And I, I haven't really played around with it that much myself. I just find that canting my bow works very effective in a hunting scenario. And so that's the way I've always done it myself.
1: No, definitely so um we touched on a little bit uh, a little bit of this but what are some of the maybe the top three I guess challenges uh, when it comes to shooting a stick bow uh, you know we talked a little bit about getting in closer uh, and, and just adding to that difficulty but maybe more specific in that what are some of the the biggest challenges you encounter shooting a stick bow over a compound or even a rifle?
0: Um, well, I don't have a lot of experience shooting a rifle to, to base that on, but I can tell you, um, I mean, my greatest challenge with shooting a stick bow is holding it together, you know, at the time of the shot. And I think I could say that with just about anything that I've shot with, but with a stick bow, it's probably even more so with a compound. You have the advantage of, you know, you have all of these physical, Draw checks or or mental um, crutches, uh, for lack of a better word. I don't want to say it's a crutch, because it's a negative thing or a or impaired thing, but it's you know you have a sight pinned, you have a kind of a, a draw stop, you know with with dropping into the valley of the bow, you have um, you know, all these things that you can kind of depend on to help you. Be shoot more consistently. There's very
1: defined exactly through the process.
0: Right, right. So even you know when you draw back, boom, you're you're hitting the same draw length every time. Versus versus a stick bow, I've seen tons of guys that can shoot you know consistently on the shooting range. They draw back, they get excited. They might short draw their bow, or they might over draw it where they're drawing back further. And, uh, you know, of course, short drawing it is going to change the trajectory of your bow because you're not putting as much um, power behind the shot. And overdrawing it, conversely, is going to make your arrow shoot flatter. So that both of those scenarios will totally mess with the trajectory of your arrow, Um, not to mention how it'll come off the, you know, the bow when you shoot it. So those are two things right away. being disciplined in picking a spot with shooting a stick bow so it's easy and this can happen on the target range too it's easy just to look at the bale and shoot at the bale versus you know picking out that that piece of hay that you want that individual piece of hay that you want to hit whereas even with a sight pin I mean, you can still do that. You can kind of black out and and shoot at the whole animal. But with that sight pin, you have a fixed reference point. So, you know, when you draw back and you anchor, you're looking through a peep sight, you're centering the pin within the peep sight, and then you're lining up that pin on what you're shooting. Whereas shooting a stick bow, man, it is so easy just with, you know, all of the distractions, um, you know, getting in close to an animal and and you get excited and it's like, oh, man, I have to, you know, get this shot off before that buck steps out or, or blows out or whatever the scenario is. And, and you come back to full draw and you look at the animal instead of looking at that small spot that you want to hit. I think that's probably the biggest challenge even, you know, to this day for me is remembering to pick that tiny spot that you want to be hitting, remembering to aim you know, because it's not forced with that, like you have that, um, sight pin to rely on. Um, so I think that's, you know, probably the biggest thing for me. I mean, that's even more so than getting close to the animal is remembering in the heat of that moment to pick that spot.
1: So then on the inverse, um, what's, uh, as a hunter, what's the best part about shooting a trad would you say? What's your favorite part? What really draws you in?
0: Oh man, when it all comes together, the feeling of success, when, when, I uh, you know, I think the, the more you have invested into anything, and this can be universally applied across life, you know, the more you have invested into something, when it comes together, it's the greater feeling of accomplishment. And, um, you know, if you tip a deer over at 300 yards with a rifle, you know, maybe it's, it's, uh, you know, you're, you're definitely going to, and I would too, I would feel ex- elated and excited. And for sure, I mean, you're justified in that. But when you've, you know, beaten all their senses and you've closed into five or 10 or 15 yards and, you know, drawn back your stick bow, and release that arrow without the benefit of uh release aid without the benefit of you know um that defined stopping point you know with the the valley of your compound without the stabilizer without the the uh range finder without all these added benefits and again i I, you know i don't i don't want to come across as some kind of purist i i hunted with a compound for years and most of my hunting partners shoot compounds, uh, but I can tell you from my personal experience that when it all comes together with a stick bow, uh, it's like no feeling that that you've ever had before. You know, when compared to shooting with any other weapon. I mean, I haven't I haven't killed anything with a spear, but that would be next level. You know, beyond <laughs> shooting, beyond punching a tag with my stick bow. I'm sure.
1: I mean, I'm I'm ready. I'm ready for the uh, you know you you sneak up on the elk with a knife and and just slit its throat. Mm-hmm. That's the next uh, that's the next level, even past that, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a little little too uh, close for for my comfort there.
1: <laughs> oh man, just jump out of the tree stand on the deer and wrestle it to the ground. That's the other one, right? Um, right. <laughs> so uh, you know, everyone's. Uh, Say you've you've tested out a the bows, you know the style you want, you you know the weight, all of that. Say somebody loves uh, loves your bows, wants to uh, wants to come buy a, a stalker stick bow. What uh, what's the best way to purchase a bow from you?
0: So you know, if you're a newbie getting into it and you wanted to buy a bow from me, um, you can order it on my website, but I'd prefer to, you know, stop what I'm doing. Um, take the time to have a phone conversation and make sure that I get you what you want versus you taking a stab at trying to, you know, guess on a few things. So picking up the phone is the best way. Um, on my website is all my contact information, stalkerstickbows.com, and uh, also you can reach out to me on social media on Facebook at you know com, Same with Instagram, and uh, and you know contact me that way, and and uh, we can set up a phone call or just you know out of the blue call me is fine. Um, but I'd, like I like said I'd rather call somebody or have somebody call me and then talk you know the way through all the wood choices draw weight bow length you know all those uh details there so that I can make sure that the bow I'm building you is going to be the best fit possible for you
1: Absolutely and uh I'll make sure to link to all your social pages and the website on the show notes page that is going to be slash 57 for episode 57 and you've got some you know I'm looking at the website here and you got you know some great content on here too you've got Section for uh, someone new to stick bows, you got all these tuning and aiming tips, lots of video resources, and then, you know, just the, you know, pardon the term, but recurve porn all over the website, <laughs> man. Yeah. Oh, and, you know, I'm, I knew that, uh, this was going to be a good and a bad idea for me doing this podcast.
0: <laughs> right, right. Huh? <laughs> it's already, it's
1: already tough. Anytime I walk, I would walk into the bow shop, uh, I just I I look at those recurves and it's it's that mental I'd have to scold myself. No. You've Mm-mm. already you've already got too much to worry about right now. Take that on once you, you know, once you feel a lot more comfortable with all the other aspects. So, so I not uh not jumping those layers at the moment, but man do I want one.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, talking about just like hunt opportunities, um I I kind of already outlined uh, you know, doing a hog hunt or something like that. But another great um, kind of low stress way or lower stress way of introducing yourself in a traditional archery from a hunting standpoint um, is, you know, if you go, say, back east on a whitetail hunt, most of the states are, they offer, um, you know, doe tags. And a great way to do that is, you know, hey, bring your compound back for filling your, um, your buck tag and then, pull out your stick bow when you're ready to shoot a doe and, and uh, try and make that happen. Or even in some of the Western hunts, have doe opportunities and and take some of the pressure off by making, you know, doing an antlerless hunt and kind of get your feet wet that way. And it's not, you know, you don't have as much at stake or as much invested necessarily as um, you know, from a financial standpoint or, or, um, you know, stress level or whatever. And, and, uh, you know, shooting, um, going on an antlerless hunt is a great way to kind of transition into traditional archery. Well,
1: and I think you could also, an awesome option would be doing something like total archery challenge or some, you know, some, and, you know, you may not be, uh, you may not be lobbing those hundred yard shots with the stick bow um, or those, right. uh-huh. you may not be doing what that 140 uh, win a truck shot either. But you know, another, that's another low pressure way that it's, yeah, it's not an actual hunting trip, but, but yeah, maybe you do, uh, you know, you do pick up that, um, that less expensive bow and, and you take it out to somewhere like that. And, you really get a feel for it in a, in a situation that's not shooting at a hay bale and you, you have a little more pressure and you learn a little more, a few more of those things before you pick up, uh, sure, pick up a brand new one. But so, uh, now that we're winding down, um, you know, we've, we've hit a lot of awesome advice for newbies, but just in general, when it a little more general, not specifically with traditional hunting or trad bow hunting, but, if somebody came to you said South, you know, I'm, I'm from the city. I don't have a background in this, or, you know, I'm just a new hunter. I don't have access to all these resources. There's so much to learn, so much to figure out. I just, I'm, I'm too intimidated to do this. What would you say to that person?
0: Um, I'd say take baby steps. Um, you know, for one, I mean, getting into hunting, if you look at social media and you look you open up the pages of the hunting magazine, you might feel like you need to be wearing the latest and greatest in um clothing and you might need to, uh, you know, buy this two thousand dollar set of optics and and then, you know, you gotta buy a, a bow that's uh, you know, a thousand twelve hundred bucks and then dump another fifteen hundred bucks in accessories onto it and what I would remind people is that, I mean, if you go back to, to where I started, you know, back in the, in the eighties and, uh, the equipment that was available then versus what's available now, you know, you could go to Craig, well, this stuff that I hunted with wouldn't even make it onto Craigslist. <laughs> people would just be throwing the stuff away. Right. So you can, you can start out with, you know, a five-year-old compound that you acquire used, and you, you know you don't necessarily have to be wearing camouflage clothes. Just find something that's quiet, something that's going to keep you warm in the elements. And uh, you know, shop Craigslist for for your backpacking gear if you're going to go that route. Because uh, you know, if you tried to to start out in hunting um, and and go all in and buy all the new greatest stuff, man, you're going to You're going to be, you know, probably north of 10 grand just to kind of get outfitted to get out the door. And you could easily be 20K into it. Um, So start, you know, your investment. My advice would be start your investment, um, you know, with some used gear to get your feet wet and to get out there. Because it's more important to get out there and start accumulating experiences than it is to go out with all the right gear. Because all the right gear is not going to fill your tags. It's going, what's going on between your ears that's going to make the difference um, for the most part. I mean, yes, will, you know, all the nicest clothing make you more comfortable and more effective on the mountain? Uh-huh, it will, but it's not going to bridge the difference between, you know, you work in 51 and a half weeks a year so you can afford it and going out for three days versus working 50 weeks a year going out with some used gear and having two weeks to you know to try to get it done in um i would start out right you know this is kind of the slant of a backpack type of a hunt right or or getting off the road type because i mean if you are camping in a campground And doing some small hunts where you can walk in and walk out, you know, that's probably the better way to start than to try to get all your gear and go for a seven day, you know, backpack trip. If you've never spent an overnight in the mountains, let alone, you know, that type of a, um, a immersion, I would start out slower. Uh, my, my first backpack trip, I left, you know, I, I was campground hunting um, I There was a spot I wanted to go to and uh, it was further than I could get in and out in one day. So I loaded up a backpack. I got, you know, down off the mountain and this is I was uh, 17 years old or something and 16, maybe I can't remember. And I uh, started getting dark abort because I was not comfortable being out there by myself, you know, overnight. So if you think about trying to. You know, do a a multi-day or a week-long hunt, and trying to you know do this solo, and and you've never spent a night in the woods by yourself, man. That can be an, an intimidating experience. And so, I would get your feet wet first by making smaller forays. You could even start doing this preseason. Go out, do a scouting trip. You know, do an overnight bonsai weekend trip where you're not burning any of your vacation time, and uh, you know, go out there, you'll, it'll get a chance for you, give you a chance to test out gear, get to know your gear, start to learn your field craft, become more experienced at, at getting out there in the woods and spending time, you know, there. And then, um, then when you, you know, are going to burn a week of vacation time, then you've already got some of this experience in the bank that will directly apply to you know, your hunt and your hunting, um, so that you're not trying to learn everything all at once. You're not trying to learn how to glass for deer and how to set up your tent on the same, on the same trip. So I would say, you know, start out slower, take your baby steps and, and, uh, you know, don't run a marathon for your first foot race.
1: Definitely. And, you know, I, I live in Los Angeles. I'm, you know, about Mm -hmm. as surrounded by city as it comes, but I can still, an hour drive, a 45 minute drive, I can still be away from the roads, find somewhere to set up my tent, and yeah, there may be a a zero to none likelihood of me seeing anything if I sat up there and glassed, but it's about, you know, once again, it's about taking off one of those layers in a a simple way, and... uh, like you said, you know, learn how to set up your tent and not have to worry about all that other stuff at the exact same time. Um, Or, and just find out if you have an aptitude for it, you know, uh, get used to, you know, get used to getting up, uh, getting, getting your gear set up and then getting up before the sun and pick a spot on the map and say, okay, you know, yes, I understand. I'm not going to see any deer actually see any deer glassing, But, you know what, I want to look at that and say, I I need. this is the point I want to get to. This would be, you know, quote-unquote, my glassing point. And so I'm going to get up before the sun. I'm going to try and get there, and I'm going to see what that takes. And I think those are super valuable experiences. And, yeah, it may not be the best hunting spot, but it's a great spot to test gear and test yourself and and train yourself for those experiences.
0: For sure. I mean, all those... That, that's a great, um, you know, great bit of advice there. Uh, you know, if you're trying to learn about, you know, how to navigate um, where to set up to glass and what a, a bit of country looks like um, on, on uh, you know, Google Earth versus, you know, boots on the ground. And you're trying to do all of this at one time and do this all you know, on a week long hunt there's a greater likelihood that you're going to get discouraged and decide to pack it in than if you've spent, you know, a couple of weekends pre-season ironing out some of these wrinkles and figuring some of this stuff out. And, and then, you know, then you're going to, there's, there's a greater chance that you're going to, you know, spend that full seven days out there in the field. And then, uh, you know, and greater chance, you know, the, the odds stack, Towards the hunter the more time you're in the field and so if you go out for um you know seven days but only hunt two of those days you know you just decreased your odds by that much versus if you go that full seven days um and you have those experiences to to build on that foundation to build on um From those earlier trips where you now know how to build a fire, you know, in the rain, you know, where to gather dry, you know, wood to dry yourself out, you know, where to set your tent up so it's not getting blown over or the conditions are miserable, you you got excessive tent, you know, condensation, you're going to be more comfortable in the elements being more comfortable out there, you know, in the hills than if that first foray is a first for all these other things that that you could, you know, be gaining experience from even if you're not, you know, in the field with a weapon in your hand.
1: Absolutely. So, just to uh just reiterate, uh stalkerstickbows.com to find you online, got all the contact info up there. Uh stalkerstickbows on Instagram, right? Yep. Uh n- yeah, I'll uh, link to those on the show notes page, com slash 57, and we will uh, we will get this up. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time this morning, hopping on the show with me.
0: Ah, uh, No sweat, man. It's my uh, my pleasure. It was a great conversation. All right,
1: y'all, that'll do it for episode 57 of Living Country in the City. Make sure y'all head on over to our show notes page at com slash 57. I've got links there to Stalker Stick Bows and the Western Boner Podcast. Make sure you go give South a follow online. But in the meantime, keep it country, y'all. Thank y'all for listening to Living Country in the City. Get show notes and check out the blog, product reviews, events, and more at livingcountryinthecity.com.
0: Now, hang on a sec here. I got an interruption here. No worries. <laughs> I forgot what? to forewarn my wife that I was recording a podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> she looked pretty shocked coming in. Yeah. <laughs> she was like, ooh. Yeah.
2: Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.